answered prayer, right? God is good, my brother. I love you. Yeah, I got a beard again. It's nice, man. You grow a better beard than I do. Thanks. I only grow it on one side, remember? You grow more hair than I do. This is true. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? Well, it was so good. Mm. The Lord is good, isn't he? I'm thankful for his goodness because tomorrow night my wife will be home. (laughs) Wes can relate, can't you? (laughs) Yeah, I have learned this week. Am I on? Lights on. How about now? <coughs> I left my water down here. Ah, oh, I hear me. I left my water down here. Uh, the Lord has taught me this week that I'm a sinner. It reminded me of that and how much I need Him and how thankful I am for my wife and what the Lord has done. I am a reconfirmed complementarian. I realize my wife is the God-given complement to me. Without her, I am a wreck. And with her, God has given me an amazing woman. Can't wait until she gets back. She's such a patient and kind and gentle lady. Grace, grace. All right. The evil generation versus the righteous remnant. We are continuing our way down through our passage in Matthew 12. Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter today and go into the parables tomorrow or next week, rather, tomorrow. I start studying tomorrow, uh, next week. Last week, we continued Jesus' discourse on The people who were rejecting him, they had seen numerous miracles. He had shown overwhelming proof of his deity and his identity as the Messiah for Israel. However, the vast majority of the Jewish people during his day were rejecting him. They wanted a different Christ. They wanted a liberating Messiah, not a humble Savior. They wanted a king who would praise their own self-righteous works, not one who showed them how impossible it was to live up to God's perfect standard and righteousness. The leaders had begun to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, a blasphemy against both him and the Spirit of God who was working in Jesus. Jesus proceeded to confront this evil generation, Last week, we began to unfold the characteristics of this inner evil generation. And today, we'll finish that character sketch and then see the contrasting people who are properly related to God in that last little section in verses 46 to 50. We saw last week the four characteristics of an evil generation to avoid by the grace of God. We went over the first three. An evil generation seeks a sign, a sign from heaven, as Luke talks about in his gospel presentation, 
a miraculous supernatural sign that would uh, be their proof or their convincing them that Jesus was the Messiah. We know from our apologetics class, however, without the grace of God working in their life, it didn't matter how many signs they got, it wasn't going to matter. But Jesus says there will be a sign, and that sign will be his death, burial, and resurrection, which is what he was pointing to when he talked about Jonah being in the whale or in the big fish. Uh, It's funny how that sticks in your mind, right? It's a big fish for three days. We saw an evil generation, however, seeks a sign. We also saw an evil generation fails to repent. They fail to turn from their sin and their self-righteousness to God. And then, unlike the people of Nineveh, who did repent, right? With very little revelation compared to the revelation that these people were getting. A glimpse of the glory of God seen in the person and work of Jesus. An evil generation, however, fails to repent in light of that revelation. And then third, an evil generation fails to seek wisdom. Unlike the queen who came and saw Solomon and sought out wisdom and heard that Solomon had gotten this from God and then exalted God, these people were not seeking wisdom. Even though wisdom incarnate was right in front of them. Even though Jesus was right in front of them, speaking wisdom after wisdom, all of his words were wise and true, they couldn't get it. They failed to seek true wisdom. They thought best, because after all, the fool despises wisdom and understanding, as Proverbs talks about. So an evil generation is characterized as those who seek signs over the given revelation of God, those who fail to repent even upon having revelation of God and those who fail to seek wisdom where there is much wisdom right in front of them. Finally, an evil generation fails to genuinely change. Fails to genuinely change. Now, when you look at our passage in 43 to 45, this is a little strange, isn't it? I mean, be honest. You read through this as he was reading through this. Is this, is this something that you've thought on before? about demons and how they go in and out of people and all these interesting facts. Look at it. It's kind of interesting. Now, when the unclean spirit, most likely a demon here, goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. What in the world? And does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied. Swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. Interesting passage, right? Be honest. Have you ever been reading through the Bible and you, you read a passage like this and you go, okay, what does this mean? There's all these interesting things that aren't developed in any other passage. There's, that none of this is developed in any other passage. By Jesus even speaking these words, it should have caused them to fall on their knees. You know why? Because Jesus is peeling back the spiritual curtains and showing and telling them things that no man has ever understood. He's talking about 
spiritual things about demons coming in and going out of people. This means that Jesus understands things that mankind doesn't understand. No other scripture had talked like this. This was a man speaking as one having authority again. A man speaking as one who knows the spiritual realm and understands things that me and you just don't get, right? If for no other reason this should have caused them to fall on their faces. But they didn't. So at first glance, this last point didn't really seem to fit with the connection from the previous one either. I have to admit, we're seeing characteristics. He's talking about characteristics, and all of a sudden, throw this one in here. We've got some demons. A demon leaves, and the guy cleans up his house, and the demon comes back to the house. The house is the human, right? But what does this mean? Why is it attached? Well, what attaches it to the evil generation? Well, it's that last little phrase. Look at it. That is the way it will be also, or it will also be with this evil generation. There's that word again, generation. Talking about the generation. So he is developing who they are. He's explaining their characteristic. This is the main point. If you get nothing else, get this. He's talking about this generation. He's talking to those people. Jesus now uses the spiritual realities of the demonic world inhabiting humans to illustrate the coming state of the generation that was rejecting him. And he explains it and illustrates it with the demonic realm. Let's make a few observations. Look at this real closely. First, the reason for the demon's departure isn't given, is it? It says it went out. It just went out. We can't assume it was out of self-effort of the person. The person didn't say, hey, get out of me. We can't assume that. We also can't even assume that it was somebody casting the demon out. It just says it went out. It went out of my home is what he calls it. In fact, it is worded that the demon appears to leave and come at its own will, which is very interesting. It leaves and then says, I will return to my home. What does that mean? That that implies that the demons, the demonic world, the evil spirits, kind of have what? Their own will. They're kind of moving and reacting, and they can go and come, and and they moved into this person. This guy moves out. (laughs) This demon moves out, and then says, I'm going to go back to my home. You know, you have to understand when he's talking about his home, he's talking about inhabiting the man, possessing the man, right? There is also some mystery with this phrase. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. Boy, you could probably find a million different opinions of what in the world that means. I'm going to tell you. I'm really not sure what it means. Oh, you're you're pastor. You're supposed to tell me what all these passages mean. Well, I'm not going to conjecture because guess what? I don't know. And I'm not going to guess. But what's important is Jesus knew. And he says something. And he talks about something that me and you in the room don't get, do we? So what should it do? It should cause us to say, he's Lord. He understands. Oh, I need him. He's the wise one. It's possible that the demons have 
the high desire to inhabit humans, we see this from the passage, because of their makeup. Now, I have to admit, this is strange. Whatever this means, demons don't like to be outside of human bodies. It looks as though they don't like to be outside of human bodies. They desire to abide in humans all the time. That's really amazing. Strange, isn't it? Why? Why do they want to be in human bodies? Well, it says because they get a level of rest by being in the human body. Seeking a place of rest. Oh, let me go back to my home. So how do they get a place of rest in the human body? A demonic being? An evil being? Again, isn't this strange? Anybody else here strange? This is strange. I don't... Wow. To some degree... The demonic realm gets relief when they're in a human causing chaos in the human. The departure, notice also, does result in the human, uh, the man's abode being cleaned after the departure. So when the demon leaves, it appears there's some kind of self-reformation that happens in this guy. That demon, when it possesses him, it's chaos. But when, it, when he leaves, the man appears to what? Clean up, right? Does this mean he literally goes into his house and cleans? No, I think he's talking about self-reforming his heart. Getting rid of the evil things and actions that he might be doing or thinking. He cleans his house up is the way it's illustrated by Jesus. But upon returning to the previous home and human, the evil spirit sees that the house is to a degree in order. Interesting. Demons like humans that have cleaned themselves up. Have you ever thought about that? That's the way it looks, right? That's the way it's wording. Cleaned up. But you understand this is a superficial change. That's what Jesus is going to show. It's self-reformation. It appears to be a self-cleansing that has happened. Who are the greatest at self-cleansings? The Pharisees. The self-righteous. They clean themselves up. But it was still whose home? The demon's home. Interesting. The demon's home. Whose home wasn't it? It wasn't God's home. It wasn't God's home. Self-reformation that's outside of God doing it is useless. And the state in the end will actually be worse than the state presently. In fact, this time the demon brings with him seven other spirits. (laughs) Again, how many questions come to your mind? Does anybody have any questions? You don't have to raise your hand, but... Does anybody else have the questions that I had reading this? You know, when you're doing observation, interpretation, application, this is like, you know, when you do your observations, you ask questions of the text. You ask them the questions of the text to see if they're answered in the text. Well, I had a list a mile long with this one. And guess what? A lot of the questions weren't answered. They weren't answered. Something like this. Unanswerable questions. How many demons can possess a person? 
a lot, and there was a legion's passage that that, that could be thousands in one human. Wow! Why seven demons here? And some say, well, it's the order of completion, you know, the number of completion. Well, you got a problem with that because it was actually eight. Oh, don't read into the numbers, beloved. Why was there eight? He brought seven with him. There's eight. Hmm. Why does the clean house make it accessible to seven more demons? By the time I got to this point, I was like, well, what do I do with all this? Answer, worship Jesus Christ. Because he knows the demonic realm, showing he is sovereign over all things. Everything that's happening. He sees it and understands it. I gotta admit, I can't wait to get to heaven and get some more answers to this. So, I don't think Scripture gives us a lot of these answers, beloved. Just being honest, it doesn't. And you can speculate and speculate and speculate, but ultimately, we just need to bow the knee, don't we? <laughs> Say, Jesus is Lord, and He gets things I don't get. I'm okay with that. How about you? However, I do believe we can answer. The question, what is the main point of the illustration? I think we can answer that. Because I think he gives it. Look at the end. It's stated. The last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be also, or will also be with this evil generation. That is, those where demons have left and they self-reform... They reform themselves. They clean themselves up. The last state of that evil generation is going to be worse than where they were before. Jesus is pointing to self-righteousness and why it doesn't work. Being a Pharisee doesn't work and it leads to disaster. They're not really changed by God either, right? Obviously. They are, in the end, going to be worse off than they were before their self-righteous cleaning. And so we get the whole point of the illustration. The evil generation may do some self-righteous cleaning, but ultimately it's not God-produced cleaning And so ultimately, their end state will be worse than before they clean themselves up with self-righteous works. An evil generation fails to genuinely change and therefore ends up worse than they were before. MacArthur puts it this way, quote, This is the description of someone who attempts moral reform without ever being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Reform apart from regeneration is never effective and eventually reverts back to pre-reform behavior. Listen to me closely, beloved. That nails it. 
the last state of man becomes worse than the first. How evil are the people in hell? Extremely evil. They hate God. And all they express is hatred towards God. Completely separated from God and with no common grace, they are getting only wrath. What do they do? They curse God all the time. Unregenerate hearts. That's where it leads. This was the generation Jesus was dealing with. They had self-reformation moments, but upon rejecting Jesus, their evil thoughts and desires would only escalate. And they would even be even worse as it went along, didn't they? First they say, he's what? Doing these things by Satan, therefore blaspheming him and the Spirit. But what's going to happen? They're going to start plotting his death, Right? We see these ruthless, this ruthless generation will hunt him down in the cover of darkness, not in front of people, falsely accuse him, try him, barbarically have him murdered, say Caesar, not him, reject him to the Romans, the Jewish elites then lied and propagated a lie about his resurrection. Then they had the apostles arrested. Remember? After the apostles arrested, they're beaten. Right? Then what happens? Eventually, they say, hunt them all down and kill them. And everybody flees. All those that were a part of the way. What was this? This was prophetic, wasn't it? This generation did exactly what he said they were going to do. They were going to go from bad to what? Worse. Put simple, an evil generation is a generation that needs regeneration. This is our society too, beloved. Do you understand Things don't get better. It's it's going down the toilet, I promise you, beloved. I'm sorry. It is. The more they reject God, the more God hands them over to them who suppress the truth. And as we suppress the truth, God gives us over more and more and more and more. This is... Our generation, isn't it? It's only going to get worse. So where is hope? Pastor Bright, give me some hope. (laughs) Here's the hope. His name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, the sovereign, the one who can cast out demons. The one who can regenerate hearts. The one who can bring about true reformation. It is Jesus we need. It's Jesus alone who we need. He is better than Jonah. He's better than Solomon. He's better than the law because he fulfilled the law. He was righteousness incarnate. He's who we need, right? It's who they needed. They needed to trust in the sign that was given to them. 
He was standing in their midst. They needed to repent in light of the revelation given to them. They needed to seek the wisdom of the wise one who was standing right in front of them. And they needed to genuinely change, not just be self-cleaned. So what should they have said? They should have said, I can't. Help me. I got a wicked heart. Help me. Ultimately, they needed a heart change by the gracious God overall. They needed Jesus to die and rise from the dead. They needed the Spirit to grant to them repentance through regeneration and faith in the gospel. They needed the new covenant, didn't they? You know, the new covenant, that thing that God had promised throughout the Old Testament kept pointing to the new covenant, the one that Bob read just a little bit ago about Ezekiel and Ezekiel. That promise, it's referenced in Deuteronomy that God will circumcise your heart. They needed a heart change. They needed God to change the heart. So what did we learn? What did we learn about the evil generation and how they're characterized? They're characterized as seeking signs. They're characterized as failing to repent. They're characterized as failing to seek wisdom. They're characterized as failing to genuinely change, but to be all about self-reformation. Most of the people Jesus was dealing with rejected him. But the amazing, glorious thing about this truth is that in their rejection, God was still fulfilling his great plan. Because the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. (laughs) And in their rejection, we can be saved. What a glorious truth. Isn't this amazing? A new people could be restored to a right relationship with Him through this new covenant. The new covenant relationship which was inaugurated at His death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. The new covenant that was prophesied in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, giving us new hearts and the spirit of the living God coming and dwelling within the souls of people. You know, I know a way that no evil spirits will come into a house when it's not just self-cleaned, but it's inhabited by God himself. They don't want to be anywhere near him because there is no rest in his presence for them. No demon wants to get anywhere near the spirit of the living God. That's good news for us, isn't it? See, there is a remnant. A remnant even within the Jews here. Whom Jesus had chosen. His eleven. Jesus was going to save them through his death, burial, and resurrection. They were already regenerate in light of what's coming but they were not indwelled. He, the Spirit was with them, but not in them. That happens after the cross. Check John 14 for that. These disciples 
were the great contrast to the evil generation, weren't they? The disciples were. They were, verse 30, 12, 30, they were with Jesus, not against him. They were, verse 27, they were sons that he most likely was referring to. They were the good trees that would bear good fruit. The ones that he had mentioned in 1235. The good tree that bears good fruit. So next we see Jesus illustrates this contrast. And it's all illustrates happens while he's speaking. He's speaking all these things in this and the events unfold right in front of him. And it is intriguing. Again, this next one is another one of those that just goes, whoa, this is interesting. Roman Catholics do not like this next section of Scripture. They want to throw these verses out of their Bible. Why? Because it contradicts two major doctrines that they propagate. Let's look. So next we see Jesus illustrates the contrast of the evil generation. <clears throat> they are the righteous, regenerate remnant that are rightly related to him. Notice the contrasting characteristics of the righteous generation. Verse 46. While he was still speaking <coughs> to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside spe- seeking to speak to him. Someone said, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and my or and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands or his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and brothers and my brothers. And whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother. And sister and mother. Gotta admit it, this one's a little a little strange too. But it illustrates the point very well and explains the contrast to the evil generation. It's the righteous remnant. It's those who are rightly related to him. Notice there there is a word that's repeated three times. I said it loudly so that you could get the point. What was it? Anybody? Behold. Did you hear me say it? It's repeated three times. Behold. 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 And also my mother and brother. That was repeated too. But behold. This word is meant to cause the reader or listener to pay close attention to the details given. Listen up. This is very important. Pay attention. This is crucial. Each time the word behold is used... We get more details of what it means to be rightly related to Jesus. And it's interesting that each time it's directed at different people and different audiences. Look at the first one in verse 46. First, Matthew, the narrator, does what? He steps outside the story event and does what? He says, behold, look, pay attention to the details that Jesus' physical mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to see him. That's what we see first. Second, we're now inside the narrative. Y'all see this? You're walking with me. You're seeing it in the Bible. You're understanding. You're inside the narrative. 
And one of the people that were in the house but heard the mother and brother talking outside, they knew that they wanted to see him, that man goes to Jesus and says what? Behold! Pay close attention, Jesus. Listen up. This is very important, Jesus. Your mother and your brother are outside, and they're seeking to talk to you. Third, in a really, really interesting twist, Jesus stretches out his hand, maybe pointing to a degree to his disciples, looking at them, but talking to the guy that just told him what? Your mother and brother are outside, and he says, but he looks right at him and says, Behold, who? First he says, Who is my mother and brother? And then he says, Behold, these are my mother and brother. Looking at his disciples. Very interesting, isn't it? Are you understanding the passage? Because if I don't do that, I've done what? I failed. I hope you're getting the passage. So let's walk through these and see how it kind of develops this concept of the contrast. First, the narrator says, Behold, look, pay close attention to the details of Jesus' physical mother and brother. And they were standing outside the house. Why was Matthew doing this? Why did he say it? Well, I think he was calling the reader to understand the circumstances. Pay close attention. Understand everything. Get what's happening here. It draws the reader into the story, doesn't it? As we're reading it, we're like, okay, i got to pay close attention. Why is it there? I'm there, aren't you? I'm there. I'm wanting to know. Now, what it's going to do, now listen closely, is it's going to flip on your head, and it's going to cause you to examine yourself by the end. It's going, to, it's going to draw you in. Because there's some natural questions that are going to happen. As you see the first behold, his mother and his brother were outside seeking to speak to him. Okay, isn't that a good thing they were seeking to speak to him? Or wasn't it a good thing? Was their motives good or bad? You're starting to ask all these questions, aren't you? Why were they there? What was going on? Was it bad for him to go talk to them? Why didn't he just immediately stop and go talk to them? It makes you think, right? You're trying to understand it. You're there. I want to know what's going on. I think that's what Matthew is trying to accomplish. By the Spirit working in Matthew, he's drawing you into the story, wasn't he? You're there. I'm there. I want to understand. It's almost like the last one. Last illustration. All those details you're starting to get, and you're like, man, there's a lot of questions here, and then boom, they... It hits you at the end. You go, oh, I get it now. You're going to see it here in a little bit. Hang in there. If their motives were from the Father, Jesus would have immediately gone to them. But we know from context, we know that his brothers were not all about Jesus. His half-brothers. Y'all understand what his brothers were. His half-brothers. Why are they half-brothers? 
Well, no, as some crazy commentators that are Roman Catholic say, no, it's not that Joseph married somebody else and had kids with him. No, 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 no. It's Mary and Joseph's children. Jesus didn't have Joseph as his father. He had God as his father. So they had the same mother, but a different father. Not the same father with a different mother, as the Roman Catholics say about Mary always staying a virgin. But his brothers were not the kind of people at this point who wanted to follow Jesus. We know from John chapter 7 that we, they in fact encouraged Jesus to go up to Jerusalem after knowing that his life was on the line. And this was most likely, John chapter 7 was probably a little bit before what we are talking about here. Obviously, also, Mary was with them on these thoughts of the brothers being there. And if the brothers were not with Jesus and Mary was with them and the brothers were wanting to speak to him, maybe it was, hey, and again, I don't know positively, but hey, People are saying some really wild things about you. You need to come home with us. Let's get you out of here. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Because what were they saying about him? They were saying he was doing miracles by Satan. It would make sense, the context. In John chapter 7, they're saying, hey, go on up. Maybe you'll meet your demise. You know, he has four brothers, right? We know of two of them. James, the book of James written by. Jude, the book of Jude, right? And by the way, the, the Roman Catholic's false doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity is obviously thrown out by this passage that says his mother and brothers were there. Also, her righteousness... She said, they say that she was righteous and she can therefore be the redeemer and the co-redemptrix. Oh, no, 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 no. No, she was outside with the brother saying, come on, come talk to us, which would be doing what? Keeping him from doing what he was doing, which was what? The will of the father. Perfectly, wasn't he? I think Mary was just like many of us in the room. She was regenerate, but at times very clueless. She was just a person like all of us. She wasn't perfectly righteous, and neither were Jesus' brothers. Remember, it was not until after the resurrection that Jesus appeared to James. There is an implication here that Jesus must be above even physical human relationships, isn't it? It's obvious. Being right, rightly related to Jesus was more than just a blood issue, which is very important for the Pharisees to know because they thought in their Jewishness, God was saving them, which is what? Wrong. That's sin. 
in a culture like Jesus was in, by the way, this is profound truth, shocking truth. Unlike our culture, we, we have a hard time with this. But this would, the first time Matthew's readers are reading this, this would have been shocking to the reader. To us, we're thinking, no big deal. We can not go out to our mom if she's outside calling from the house. If my mom's at the door knocking and I'm talking to somebody uh, or she calls me, no offense, mom, in our culture, in our society, is she can wait. Right? Isn't that our culture? And it's not everybody's culture. But it's becoming that culture more and more. And ultimately, it's because we're unregenerate. Right? But their culture was totally different. If a mom was at the door with the brothers saying, come, it would have been what? Disrespectful and not honoring for him to run to the door and say, what's up? Can I do anything for you? It must have been shocking. When the guy says, behold, Jesus, <laughs> your mom and your brothers are out there. He was not expecting, behold, this is my brothers and mother. <laughs> Would have gone totally against their culture, their thoughts. Matthew was calling the readers to look at the circumstances and understand what Jesus prioritized. What matters? When even his family and his were seeking him outside. Notice the second, behold, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing there. Someone tells Jesus this. We aren't told the motives behind the person relaying the message, but I could see it being, hey, you know, this is common. You should just go see them. But we kind of get the picture that the tension's growing in the narrative, right? There's a tension growing in the house. Hey, we're here to see you, Jesus. Mom's here with us. Come on out. Another guy in the room. Hey, did you hear? They're outside. Pay attention, Jesus. Look, they're outside. Is the tension growing? Oh, yeah, it's growing. And then, in an amazing way, Jesus just shocks the whole place. <laughs> he says, behold, these are my mother and brothers. The disciples? <laughs> what? In the world is Jesus talking about? They're the righteous remnant. They're the ones that are really rightly related to him. No, Jesus wasn't disowning his mother, was he? No, we know he wasn't. By no means. Remember, in little less than a year from this moment in the narrative in Matthew 12, Jesus will be on the cross. And when he's on the cross, what's he say to the Apostle John? This is your mother. Was John his half-brother? No. 
Why was Mary there? Where were the brothers at this point? Nowhere to be found. Why was Mary there? I think by the time the cross happens, Mary gets it. By the time the cross is happening, Mary's like, oh, oh, oh. This is what it means to be my Savior. And Jesus, knowing that for her to be there with a, com- a person considered a criminal, she gets it. The only one that was going to take care of him wouldn't be the brothers at that point. It would only be a true follower, a regenerate believer, the Apostle John. Listen, if, if, you, had, if you were a, a mother or, or a father that had a son that was crucified, what did you do? Well, you stayed away from the cross. Otherwise, you got lumped in with that guy. That was shame. But Jesus was there and Mary was there. And Jesus honors his mother by saying, take care of her. She's your mother now, John. Take care of her. Jesus loved his mother. So he wasn't abandoning her at this point in his life. His point is to the group in the home. And it was much bigger and more important than addressing his family who was outside. It was the most important thing. It involved seeing things from a totally different perspective. And I cannot stress this to you. Behold, listen up, pay attention, get this. There's a spiritual reality that's outside the physical realm. Something much more important. Jesus was saying being in a right relationship with him was different than being physically related to him. The evil generation was all about the here and now and all of the physical family relationships. Yet they were headed towards God's judgment because of self-reformation. But the righteous remnant were rightly related to Jesus. The disciples were rightly related to him. And he was saying, they are my family. They are my children. Or they are my brothers, which is a startling thought, isn't it? You say, well, Mike, the word regeneration isn't used here. It doesn't say it. How do you know that the ones who were rightly related to Jesus were the regenerated remnant? Born again. Well, because look at the passage in verse 50. Jesus tells of the fruit of their right relationship to him. Look at the fruit. For whoever does the will of my father, these are my mother and brother. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Those who obey, those who do the will of God, those who do the will of my Father, those are the ones that are his brothers, sister and mother. Wait a second. 
So you're telling me that I have to obey to be rightly related to him. I have to obey to be rightly related to him? Are you drawn into the story yet? Are you there? Give me another behold, right? Just give me one more. What about me? Anybody in here reveal, obey the revealed will of God all week? Anybody obey God's word all week? Anybody keep the commandments all week? Anybody? Thankfully, nobody raised your hand. Because if so, we got a problem. Whoever does the will of the Heavenly Father who is in heaven, this is my brother, my sister, my mother. You know, I should just stop here and let it go, right? Let's just leave it here. I don't know about you, but by this time in the narrative, I'm like, if you're reading this and you're a non-believer and you're reading this, you got to be going, the Sermon on the Mount slayed me. But now he says, people have to obey what the will of the Father is. I'm gone. How about you? Are any of us in here brothers of Jesus? Who obeys God's word perfectly? And notice there's no response given, right? Come on. There's got to be another verse in this chapter. And somebody came back up to Jesus and said, How did they become brothers? Why do you consider them brothers? They obey? Those guys? Nah. What about me? I'm not obeying. I know it. I know I'm not perfect. I know I sin. Way. A lot. How about you? That's exactly where Matthew wants you. That's where God wants you. How does someone come become rightly related to God? It's through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does somebody obey the commands of God? We don't. But Christ did. And when Christ died, he not only fulfilled everything, he obeyed perfectly till the end. All that righteousness is now credited to whose account? Everybody who believes in him. And what? We are declared right with God. (laughs) And we are adopted into his family. Oh, what a glorious truth. 
A sinner like me can have all my sins forgiven. And all of his righteousness credited to my account. We're being drawn into it. Because there's only one who has obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. And who was it? Jesus Christ. He gets all the praise. And what did the disciples know? They were regenerate and they knew one thing. You have the words of eternal life. Where else do we go? You're the one. You're my only hope. I was reminded of this this week, right? Born again believer that sinned this week. You're like, Pastor Mike, I wish you'd quit saying that you sinned this week. Because you're supposed to be that pastor that doesn't sin. Brothers and sisters, if you think that I am somehow better than you, you have missed the boat. I'm a human just like all of y'all. Apart from the grace of God, I would be in hell right now burning and deserving it. I can put a coat on and I can put a nice tie on, but that doesn't mean my heart's always clean. I need Jesus. You do too. The good news is is that there's hope. In Him, we can be a part of a new covenant relationship with God. Demons aren't going to inhabit our soul because the Spirit of God inhabits our our souls. Right? And through repentance and faith in Him and Him alone, our sins are forgiven and His righteousness is credited to our account. And we walk by faith, not by sight, because we know... That our righteousness is in Him, not in ourselves. And we read the Gospel of Matthew and we say, Yep, I failed miserably. I need a Savior. And then, by the grace of God, He works within us. And the Spirit of God works within us to obey our Father. Isn't that good news? Jesus says, or Ezekiel 36 states, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Wow. Has this been completely fulfilled? No, I don't believe so. If you read Ezekiel in there and that whole section, he read it very well. Bob read it. Did you see that it mentioned land? A lot of land in there. That's part of the new covenant promise that Israel will one day open up their eyes. So God will open their eyes. And that we are restoration. This is the final fulfillment of it. But are we included in it? Are we enjoying the benefits of it? Yes. And by the grace of God, does God work in us to obey Him? Yes. Is it perfect? No. But is it a direction? Yes. This is where we're going. We want to obey Him, don't we? Now this is the time for you to speak up. You want to obey Him, right? (laughs) Why? Because He loves us. And because He died for us. And because He changed our hearts. 
And because he's better than this life, isn't he? And because he's better than our families. It's been ten long days. Long days. Since I saw my wife. But I had somebody with me the whole time. And he's better than her. And if she didn't come home, I'd be okay. By grace, through faith, and the all-satisfying one, Jesus Christ, my brother. What a grace. What a grace. God Almighty came to earth died on a cross, rose from the dead. And as he said to tell the apostles, I go to my God, your God, my Father, and your Father. We are now adopted into his family. And the Spirit of God indwells us. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, what good news this is, isn't it? The all-satisfying one, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Let's abide in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in Christ. You are good. You are kind. You are loving, merciful. You have sent your son into this world to die to pay for our sins. The ones we should be paying for. And yet he died for them, and he paid for our sin. And for this, we worship you, we praise you, we thank you. We can't wait to see our Lord Jesus. We cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want to see you, we want to be with you, we want to know you in glorified bodies that are free from these bodies of death that we drag around. Oh, Lord, we long, we long to be with you. We long to see you and to enjoy you and to behold your glory. For you, God, are worthy of all of our worship and praise and honor. You are worthy of everything. God, take our hearts, transform them. Help us, God, to enjoy you. To be satisfied with you. Any idol in our hearts, wretch them out, take it, destroy it, cause us to find joy in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.